My style of preaching is to take a biblical text and uh, expound on that text, explain it and illustrate it and uh, stick to a text. There's sometimes you can't do that based on the kind of sermon you're going to be preaching. Uh, when we have to deal with topics as we're going to do today, there's no, on most all doctrines, there's not just one passage you can turn to and say, that's the passage we're going to look at. If it's a topic, you have to look at a bunch of, uh, of verses. Uh, if you only have one verse to support a certain position, I would suggest usually if you look a little closer, you're going to find out you don't even have one. Uh, the, the scripture in its doctrines comes from a lot of different areas. And so we're going to be looking today at a doctrine and to keep you from having to flip through the Bible so quickly, because we will go so quickly that as time as you got there, we would be on another verse. And then you'd be trying to get to that one, and then we would be on another one. And so the fellows have worked with me upstairs. We've never done this before, of putting these verses as they come. And so uh, they're in the order I'm going uh, to present them in. But uh, if we get out a little kilter uh, on this thing, just remember, we're novices at this. We haven't done this before. And so we're going to put those verses up there for you the best that we can. But when we talk about the doctrines of the, uh, of the church and the doctrines of our faith, um, they fall into at least two categories. It's really three. I won't go further into that. But there are those doctrines, folks, that if we don't believe and that we don't agree on, uh, we are just not Christian. There, there's just, uh, if a person doubts, um, for instance, that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, the, you can't be a Christian and deny that in any historical or biblical sense of the word. Or that Jesus died on the cross and, and rose and that he's coming again. Those are doctors. In other words, those are what, if you're familiar with, those are what we'd sort of call Apostles' Creed doctrines. Those are the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, and there's not any room for us to disagree with those on because that's the essence of what Christianity is. Now, there are other doctrines that uh, true, genuine, Bible-believing Christians have not agreed on. Okay? <clears throat> and that is one that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what the, the Bible says about the perseverance of the saints. Uh, there are some people who believe, and they are genuine, God-fearing, Bible-believing people that believe a person can be saved, truly saved, and before they ever get to heaven can lose that salvation. Okay? Uh, there are others, and we are certainly, as we will see in our tradition, hold to something else. There's a lot of confusion about this, and uh, that's why I want us to take the time to look at this, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, it always, uh, uh, always does us well, as I said, to uh, define, define exactly what do we mean. Uh, I, I want to, let me define for you what I mean by the perseverance of the saints, and every word of this definition is important. Okay? What it means is this. All of those who are truly born again, not everybody who makes a profession of faith, okay? everybody who is truly born again 
will be kept by God's power, not by their power. Everybody who has been born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Sometimes this is called the eternal security of the believer. There is a phrase that is used sometimes to describe that that I do not like, and I'll explain to you why. I hear people say, well, do you believe in once saved, always saved? I say, no, I believe in once saved, always saved. There's a difference, okay? Uh, The once and always, if they were once really saved. So I don't like that term unless somebody can allow me to explain what I mean by it. The 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, and I really didn't stop to ask anybody, but I think that's the doctrinal statement of this church. Uh, It's certainly the doctrinal statement that is uh, given by the Southern Baptist Convention. It is a doctrinal statement that has to be signed by every employee, uh, particularly in a leadership position, in any of our denominations or agencies of the Southern Baptist Convention. That means all of your seminaries. Any professor who teaches there has signed that document. It reads this way. It's a little bit fuller. It says, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from a state of grace, but will persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit they impair their graces and their comforts and being reproached to the, of, on the cause of Christ and on temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God okay, through faith unto salvation. Now there's a lot of reasons that this doctrine is important. And I would say first of all is there's a lot of people are confused about it. And they're confused because it's often been caricatured, you know. Where, where people say, oh, oh, so if you believe in the eternal security of the believer, you can believe somebody can just ask Jesus to save them, and then they live however they want to and care nothing about Jesus, nothing about holy living, and then they're going to go to heaven. Uh, that's not what this says. It says if a person is truly saved. Part of, a good part of my sermon last week was on we are saved And we are saved from what? Sin. We are saved from sin. If a person is not in the process of being saved from sin, and they're just living in it and wallowing in it, then it's a sign they are not believed. Now, can true believers fall into sin? You've heard the the statement. They certainly can. We are saved, though, from sin. So this doctrine is not saying a person can just walk down an aisle and sign a card and then live however they want to or live as a Christian for a year and then completely turn their back on God and then they're still saved. That is not what this doctrine has said. I would say very carefully, get the Baptist faith and message statement. It's online. Read it. That's what it means. It is oftentimes misunderstood. Also, because of that, Many unbelievers have mistakenly taken refuge in this doctrine. Uh, They are 
living without any concern for God, no commitment to him, whatever else, but they'll say, you know, I know two things are true. John 3, 16, I believed in Jesus, and if you're once saved, you're always saved, so I'm in. I'm saying that's poor logic and even worse theology. We need to read the entire Bible and see what it has to say here. Folks, this doctrine does indeed bring comfort to true Christians who are struggling with sin and against sin, but not someone who is excusing their sin and taking a false comfort that they are truly a child of God when they are just living in sin with no care about holy living at all. A third reason this is important is many Christians who have not believed it have lost a source of great joy and comfort in their life that God intends for them to have. My mother was one of those who was raised in a tradition that taught other than this until way up into adulthood, she struggled with the fact that she wasn't a Christian and then not a Christian and was a Christian and not a Christian. And I'm saying she lost a lot of joy and comfort that God intended for her to have. Now, I want to approach this subject from three angles. Okay, uh, First of all, I want to show that the Bible clearly teaches the perseverance of the saints. Okay. Um, it clearly teaches it. Secondly, I want to show us that other doctrines that we believe, okay, if we fully understand those, they would also imply, require a perseverance of the saints. And then I want to deal with objections to this doctrine and show that they are built on misconceptions. Okay? So let's look scripturally what does the Bible teach here. I want you to notice as we look at these passages, I want you to notice two things. They teach that the, that the believer is secure, and they teach that it's God who's doing it, okay? It's God who keeps us uh, in the faith. Uh, those who deny this, if you look at their theology as a whole, what you will find is there is more of a man-centered theology than a God-centered theology. When you have a God-centered theology, this is where you'll end up, okay? And I'll seek to demonstrate that from the Scriptures. Christians persevere because God preserves. We do the persevering, okay? We persevere, but there's a reason we persevere. It's because God's preserving us. It is of Him. Okay, fellas, Psalm 37, 24, okay? Though he stumble, he will not fall. You ever stumbled? Believer, you ever stumbled? You didn't completely fall, you did, and here's why. Because the Lord upholds him with his hand. Because let me tell you something. If I could have lost my salvation... I would have. I know me. Uh, God has held me when I fell. That's my only hope. Even great Christians, believers, have fallen into sin. David fell into sin. Peter fell into sin. Folks, great Christians today fall into sin. 
That's why, please, do not put your faith ultimately in people. I don't care how wonderful they are. People will fail you. It's because people sin. They fall, but God does not let go of his child. Okay. In Psalm 51, I've heard people say, well, David prayed in Psalm 51 for God after he sinned to restore his salvation to him. No, he didn't. He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I didn't lose my salvation, but living in sin apart from God, I certainly lost the joy that God intended for me to have. In 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Here's my key part. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know in whom I have believed, and I am love this word, convinced. I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. You know what I entrusted to God? Me and my salvation and my hope. I entrusted that to him. And it tells me here that he is able to guard it. Same Greek word means to keep it. He is able to keep it, and he does. Folks, that doesn't have anything to do with my feelings. doesn't have anything to do uh, with my self-confidence. There, there are people that say, so you believe you're going to make it to heaven just because you get a lot, of awful co- a lot of confidence in yourself, don't you? I say, no, but I've got an awful lot of confidence in God. I'm not holding on to him. He's holding on to me, and that's my only hope. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him. Who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor anything else in all of creation. Are you part of creation? Well, that includes you. Nothing, not even you, is going to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing here about self-preserving. It's God preserving his own. In John chapter 10. And by the way, I'm going to read a verse, gentlemen, up there. Let me tell you, I've got one in here that you don't have. So if you, I don't, and I don't remember which one it is. So if you start scrambling, just say, we don't have that one. <laughs> okay? Uh, that's my fault. I added it later. John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Now, you know what eternal life means? It means eternal life. (laughs) You know what eternal means? It means eternal. Okay. And they'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I love how actually 
we always have to smooth this over coming from Greek into English, but, but it basically says something like literally, they shall never perish forever. You can almost say it this way. They will never perish ever. That's what he says. No one means no one. My friend, when God has you in his hand, nothing, no one, including you, is going to take it out. Okay? It is in the hand of God. John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And he said, this is his will. This is why God sent me. This is what his will is. This is what he wants me to do, and I'm going to do it. Here's what it is. That I shall lose none that he has given me, but raise them up on that last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Everybody who looks on him. It seems very difficult to avoid the conclusion here that what Jesus is saying is that every person who has truly believed in him is going to remain in him until the resurrection because God is going to preserve. He says, I'm not going to lose any of them that the Father has given to me. They're not going to be lost at all. Now, there are some people who have looked at this, and part of this is true. I'm going to show you the conclusion is false. They say it's, Jesus says, those who believe on me. That's in the present tense in the Greek. That, that means a continuous, a, t- a continuous believing. So they're saying, Jesus is saying, if you continue to believe in me, But I want to tell you why I beg to differ here. Because Jesus says, I gave you eternal life. Now, folks, let's think about this just for a moment here. If you ever had eternal life, by definition, you couldn't lose it. Do you see that? Does anybody say that? If you had eternal life, but you didn't end up having eternal life, then you never. Eternal life means you're always going to have it. If you ever had eternal life, you can't lose it because that's not eternal life. Eternal means if Jesus gave you eternal life when you first came to him, that means eternal. Then if you didn't have it and you somehow didn't make it, you didn't have eternal life. That's why this verse cannot possibly mean that. Okay? Now, there's a lot of other verses, and by the way, these aren't up there. I didn't intend for them to be. John 3.36 makes the same point. John 5.24, 1 John 5.3. Okay, eternal means without end. If you came to Jesus in true faith and repentance and have bowed before him as Lord and Savior, he gave you eternal life, which means eternally you're going to have it. If you lose it somewhere along the way, you did not have to say, well, I had eternal life, but I lost it. I'll just let you think about that for a moment. Okay. Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1.6, Paul says being confident of this. Again, I love those words, confident, confident that he who begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice who began that work in you. Yeah. You, know, you know who began it? I didn't begin my salvation, folks, and you didn't begin yours. And it says, the same one who began it 
is going to see that it is brought to completion all the way to the day of Jesus. That's telling us two things. You're eternally secure, and God's the one doing it. A little bit later in Philippians, same book, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Paul writing there, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not just in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Not work to get saved. God saves you. Now work that out into every area of your life. And here's why. You think, well, that's a lot dependent on us. Well, it is, but he's not finished. Because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. My friend, if you're a child of God, he is working in you. And he is going to keep working in you until he is finished with you in glory. Folks, rejecting this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints here, you know, uh, it, it doesn't just affirm our inability. If, if you deny it, it, it's actually denying God's ability to save us and keep us. It's not saying something about my ability or inability. It, it's God's ability to do that. Man, let's think of Martin Luther's great song, uh, A Mighty Fortress. What's the second verse of that? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. You know what we could say in that line to that where we're, if, if you were trying and resting in your own strength, you'd be losing. That's sort of what I said a minute ago. If you could have lost your salvation, you would have. Okay. Trust in us. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that might be. Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. It's not depending on us. Do we, are, are we persevering? Folks, it's the perseverance of the saints. The saints persevere. But why do we persevere? Because God is working in us to do his will and good pleasure. We persevere because he preserves. That's why. Now, <clears throat> There are other biblical doctrines that we hold to that cannot possibly be true unless the, the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true. I call your attention to several of these. First of all is the doctrine of Christ's propitiation. Propitiation, don't hear that word much. Propitiation is this. It's a sacrifice that averts the wrath of God. I tell my students this over and over again. You're going to define propitiation for me on a test, and if it doesn't have the wrath of God in it, then you do not have it right. It's not some kind of sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that is intended to deal with the wrath of God. It propitiates the wrath of God. Romans 3, 25. God and uh, different translations translate this a different way, different ways. God has presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The word there is propitiation through faith in his blood. 1 John 4:10. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice or as a propitiation for our sins. Friends, Jesus dying on the cross did not earn God's love for you. It wasn't God hated us, Jesus loves us, and now God loves us. 
The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his son. Okay? Jesus didn't earn God's love. He dealt with the justice issue that was between us and God. Okay? He dealt with justice. God was dealing with sinners, and he is just, and the only way he could, in a just way, forgive sinners is to send Jesus. Okay? Jesus is our propitiation. He propitiated the wrath of God for you. Now, folks, here's the, 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 the question here. Can God be unpropitiated? If Jesus actually removed the wrath of God because of his death, God doesn't unpropitiate anybody. He doesn't say, well, he removed my wrath for a while, and his death worked for a while, but it's not working anymore. That's poor reasoning, and it's poor biblical theology to think otherwise. God cannot be unappeased. He was appeased. Jesus was a propitiation. Secondly, I'll turn to very quickly, Christ's intercession for us. It's great for having other people to pray for you. We ought to be doing that all the time. But friends, let me tell you something. Jesus is praying for you. That's a whole lot better than anybody else. John 17, 15. Jesus said, my prayer is not that you be taken out of the world. He's praying for his disciples. But that you be, that God protect you from the evil one. Do you think God's ultimately going to protect you from the, from the evil one? Or do you think he's going to turn you over? God's not going to turn you loose, my friend. In Luke 22, 31, 32, gentlemen, that might be it. Here is it. Nope, we got it. Okay. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus is warning Peter what's going to happen. Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, when you've repented, when you've fallen and come back, and it's not if you do, you will. He says, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Yes, you're going to fall, but let's go back to the words of the psalmist. When you do, you're not going to fall completely. And here's why. Because God is holding you by the hand. Thirdly. Our union with Christ. Folks, everything that we have in our salvation is because we were united in him. Everything we have. His, his blood is applied to us because we were in him. His, his righteousness is given to us when we didn't have any righteousness because we are in him. Okay? Paul says in Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus that are united with him in his death and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, It's because of him that you are in Christ, who has become for us, this is what you have and I have because we are in Christ, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Friends, we are united with Christ. Do we become ununited with him? He says, it's our righteousness. Does God take the righteousness that he gave from Christ to us and take it back? Our holiness, our redemption, we have that because we are united in Christ. Does he take us out of Christ when we were united with him and we lose the redemption? 
We can't become ununited with Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit, same thing. When we understand the work of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writing there, having believed, now note he didn't say having made a profession. He said having believed, really believed. You were marked in him with a seal. God sealed you. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who God possessed. That means all the way to the end. God gave you the Holy Spirit, he says, to seal you and as a down payment. Now, I want to address, address both of those. This is what the Holy Spirit's done. You know what a seal does? It seals stuff. So I ask easy questions. Y'all wonder why students have a difficult time with my tests? My questions are so easy. You know, you know what a seal does? It seals something. You know, when you seal an envelope, you seal it so that what's in there can't get out. Or when you seal, you know, I don't do canning. My wife does, but those little things will get hot, and all of a sudden you'll hear a phoom. I said, what was that? She said, oh, that just sealed. So you can take it and turn it upside down and all that, and it doesn't come out. My friends, let me tell you something. When the Holy Spirit seals you, you are sealed. You are sealed until the day of redemption. And then he says, he's all, the Holy Spirit was given to you as a down payment. Now, we don't do much of that, I don't think, anymore. You know, if you want to, used to be, if you wanted to buy something, you know what you did? You went in and said, all right, I'll put down 50% of this. I can't pay the rest, but I'm giving you 50% as a guarantee that I'm going to come back with the rest of it, okay? Don't sell this to somebody else. I've already paid half of it, okay? It's mine. I'm coming back. The fact that I'm giving you $50 out of the 100 means I've made a down payment, and that's a guarantee. Some of the translations actually say, this one does, guaranteeing our inheritance. God gave you the Holy Spirit to seal you, and also as a down payment, that he had a whole bunch more coming for you. You didn't get it all. We await glory, and you're going to get it because you are sealed. If we understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that makes a world of difference. The doctrine of adoption is the same thing. Okay? You can't, Galatians 4, 5. He might, that he might redeem us that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It's true in our day, just like it is, was in their day, folks. When you adopted somebody, you adopted them. You didn't undo it. It's the same thing, by the way, in our society today. If you adopt a child, it's yours. And, and if you decide in giving the inheritance, you want it to go to your real children and not the adopted children, that's not going to stand up in court. The court is going to look at those children as all being exactly the same. You can't undo it. There's a fellow I was in high school with, married a girl, lady, she had four children. He adopted them. They divorced. He paid alimony on his children until they were 21. You said they weren't his. Yes, they were. He adopted them. You cannot unadopt them. You can't do it now, and you couldn't do it in the ancient world. And Paul meant something when he said, you have been adopted. 
When God brought you into the family, he adopted us into his family, and that's why he said we are joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs. He's an heir of things, and we're joint heirs with him. We're connected to him. Why? Because we were adopted. He is the son of God by eternal generation. We are the child, children of God by adoption. If you understand adoption, we understand how it must be. The doctrine of regeneration. If a per- Most of us don't understand the doctrine of regeneration. If you think, what's regeneration? It means being saved. No, it doesn't. It's not what regeneration means. Okay? Regeneration means, R-E means, again, if you reread a book that you hadn't read before, you didn't reread it. You just read it. Okay? You, you can't reread something you hadn't already read. You are being regenerated. Generated means born. It means to be born again. Now, don't you have to be born again to be saved? Yes, but they're not exactly the same thing. Okay? Regeneration means that we have been given a new heart. We were born wrong the first time. And through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we are reborn. Our lives are changed. Jesus, in John 3, 3. Says to Nicodemus, I declare to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. My friend, he's telling them, that sinful nature you've got is not going in. Nothing's going in that's going to defile it. If you're going in, you're going to have to be born again. Your life has to be changed. Now, let me ask you something. How were we born again? Was that what God did? That's not. Did God do it? Yeah. Is God going to unborn you? In fact, doesn't that word even make... No, how would you even say that somebody got unre, unrebirthed? I guess that's what you'd have to say. Uh, I mean, the fact that you were born, you can't be unborn. If you are reborn, you can't be unreborn. If God has changed your life and your heart, he's not going to undo it. In fact, he's working in us to bring us to glory to do exactly the opposite. You see, a person not understanding the doctrine of regeneration, that causes people, again, not to appreciate the eternal security of the believer. They don't understand regeneration. But I'll tell you what, other people don't. Those who presume upon this doctrine and think, well, all I had to do is believe in Jesus, and now I'm going to heaven regardless of what, they didn't understand regeneration either. Because regeneration means God changed your heart and your life. If that's not being reflected, he didn't change your heart and your life. If you were regenerated, he's not going to... Regenerating someone, folks, is a miraculous thing. God's not going to do a miraculous thing and undo it. Nowhere in the scriptures is there a hint of that. We can also see, and I... The, the, the doctrine of election implies the perseverance of the saints. Now, there are different views. First, the, the Bible uses the term election. It's in there. Okay? Tear it out of your Bible if you want to, but it's in there. Now, there are different p- ways of understanding. There are people that hold to conditional election. There's people who hold to unconditional election. But whatever it is, it happened from the foundation of the world. The Scripture says that very clearly. Romans 8, 30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Folks, I want you to look at this. Look at the next sentence. 
Those whom he justified, he glorified. Every one of them that God declared not guilty, what happens to them? Trick question again. Glorified. You know what glorified means? You think I'm going to say glorified, but I'm not. (laughs) It basically means I made it all the way to glory. (laughs) I became everything God intended for me to be. Who did? Every one of them that he justified. Folks, there is no such thing as a person who has come to faith in Jesus, has repented truly of their sins, and God said to them, not guilty, that he ever came back to them and said, all right, no, we're going to have to go back and revisit that thing. Okay? It just doesn't happen. Uh, it brings a security to us. Very quickly, it's built on misconceptions. Misconceptions. What are the misconceptions, folks? One of the misconceptions is that people want to evaluate. If you ask, let me ask it this way. If a, if a person generally believes that you can lose your salvation and you ask them why they believe it, almost never will they say because the Bible says so. It's always because, well, I knew somebody. You know, they were a Christian and now they're not. Okay, now, what does the Bible say? Are we supposed to judge, you know, what, by what the Bible says or by what appears to be us to us on the surface? Uh, listen to what John says in 1 John 2, 19. He says, they went out from us. They were believers and or appeared to be, and they went out from us. Well, how are we supposed to evaluate that? Well, they must have lost their salvation. John says, no, 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 that wasn't it. He says, they went out. Because they didn't really belong to us. 1 John 2, 19. For if they would have belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Got that? But their going out showed that, you can read it, none of them belonged to us or they never belonged to us. That's why. Now, folks, you can say, but man, there these people. It was even a preacher. I I know, and that's why the Bible warns us over and over again. Uh, uh, look at Judas and Peter. Here's Judas turned his back on Jesus. Peter turned his back on Jesus. What was the difference? The Bible's very clear with Judas. He never was one of us. Okay? He was one of the 12. Man, he never, his heart never was one with us. Okay? Now, what's the story with Peter? Exactly the opposite. Jesus had met him in the verses just like I told you a few moments ago. When you've you've sinned, when you come back, get back to your business of converting others. What was the difference? One of them was saved. One of them wasn't. It seems to me the scripture is very clear here. We are to evaluate. And and that's why. Uh, Look, uh, uh, Mark uh, 4, 16 to 17. Guys, are we there yet? Have I missed one somewhere? Do we have that one? They got it. Okay, uh, Jesus in his parable, uh, a very extended, probably the most extended parable he ever taught, Mark chapter 4, 16 and 17, notice what he, what, what he tells us about people. They received the seed, which is the gospel, they received, and how'd they respond? Okay, Others like seed, they hear the word, 
And at once they received it with joy. They were thrilled to hear the message. They made a profession. They signed a card. They walked to the front of the church. They got baptized. They joined the choir. They might have been a preacher. But it says, ultimately, they, they, they fell away. They quickly fell away. What's Jesus telling? Folks, he's saying people can go a long, 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 long way toward believing and give all kinds of signs for years that they're believers. But Jesus said, if you don't know those who are saved, it's those who endure to the end. You'll know that's, that's the real ones. Have people seriously disappointed us? Yes. But it's like the script, our, our Baptist faith and message says that either fall into sin for a while, grieve the spirit, hurt the church, hurt themselves, but then God brings them back. They can't stay that way. Or they never were saved to begin with. Uh, so, uh, the, 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 there, there are people that also, again, I've, I've addressed this, that this doctrine gives them a false assurance. You know, I know I'm living in sin. You know, I know I've talked about, I know, I know that's what, but I believed in Jesus. And I believe in the perseverance of the saints, so I'm going to be okay. And again, I just say, the Bible has a whole lot more in it than those two things you just quoted or told me. And we had best look at all of them. This is John 8, 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you hold to my teaching, you're my disciples. What's the implication? If you don't hold to them, you weren't my disciples. If you really are my disciples, you will end up holding on to them. Now, the reason you'll hold on is God's holding on to you. Okay, But you indeed will persevere. Folks, let me read you two passages from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the only place where the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, refers to the New Covenant, the New Testament, by name. It actually says the New Covenant. And he describes here the, what the people that are in the New Covenant are going to be. This, this is you if you're a child of God. This is how they will be. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Listen, I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. You know where the law was in the Old Testament? You know what it was written on? Tablets of stone. He said, not going to be that way in the new covenant. When Jesus comes and I pour out my Holy Spirit and you are regenerated, one of the ways of speaking of regeneration is God is going to write his law on your heart. It becomes part of who you are. You can't divest yourself from it if you wanted to, and you won't want to because he's put his spirit in you and has changed you. And then in Jeremiah 32, 40, he says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. You're in the new covenant. You will never turn away from me. Why is that? Because God wrote his law on your heart when he regenerated you. He changed your life. Folks, the question is not so much. Oh, by the way, I want to stop there and say there's one other objection. Because I've got to put, put a plug in for Wednesday. I said almost nobody, if you're asked why they believe in the eternal security of the believer, almost nobody will say because the Bible says so. Some people will. Not many. But they will refer to Hebrews 
chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Okay? Um, and I will not deal with Amos this Wednesday. I'm going to deal with that passage. Okay? Of what it says there and show you that's not what that is saying at all. Okay? Put the plug in for then. Okay? Uh, what do we see here? The question's not ever if I have fallen some, you know, did I lose my salvation? Folks, the question you have to ask is, was I ever saved? That's the question the Bible keeps coming back to, uh, uh, to look at. Uh, what, what does this tell us? Folks, it tells us so many things. It says, first of all, particularly concerning salvation, don't trust yourself. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. You know, uh, God saved us, and we're going to stay saved because of him. Have confidence in him. This ought to cause us to lay aside all pride. Lord, I didn't get myself into the kingdom, and I can't even keep myself here. As I said, if I could have lost my salvation, I would have. The reason I haven't is because he does not turn loose. Folks, realize how great a salvation that we have. It not only saves us, it secures us. It's that great of a salvation. Remember, we are to persevere. We are to take steps to persevere. That ball is in our court. But the, ray, the reason we're going to win is because he is preserving us. It tells us we are to glorify God for our salvation and for our security. I'm not going to be able to get to heaven and look down on people in hell, some that used to be Christians and weren't, and said, you know, if you'd have just been like me, <laughs> you know, I persevered, you know. You just didn't do it. You deserve what you're getting. I'm better than you are, yeah. I preserved, persevered, you didn't. That's not going to happen. Folks, when we are in heaven, we are going to praise God for our salvation and for our security. And the reason for that is salvation is of the Lord. We have so much for which to glorify him. Would you stand with me, please? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for allowing us to see the clarity of it. Lord, thank you for what you have done to save us. Father, we cannot begin to imagine the cost that that was to you. And that you're not going to lose one of those sheep as Jesus sought and found that last one and brought it home. Lord, our confidence is in you. We throw open the doors of our hearts afresh and anew and say, Lord, do your deep work of grace in us. Empower us by your grace to persevere in the midst of everything that comes. And Lord, because you're preserving us, we will give you the honor, the praise, and the glory for it all. Because you deserve that. In that blessed name of the shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwardsboro Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.